Sound on? Good. There's two handouts you'll need for today. Uh, we're going to finish Joshua. And so Joshua handout is in the very back. Owen, can you look on the back by the sink and see if you see any Joshua handouts? That's Judges. Judges is what we're starting today. Joshua is what we're finishing from last week. So the nice thing about the Old Testament is it's very um, connected and we can just bleed a little bit over into the next class, no problem. So, okay, we're talking about the Old Testament. We're just taking a quick survey. We're not really diving into anything deep. Uh, we're taking a survey of what the book is about, each book. Sometimes we spend a couple of weeks, a book is so important or so big that we can't cover it in one hour session on a Sunday morning. But this is to give you as believers a, a foundation, something to study the Bible with. You can read the Bible and get a lot from it, but it's helpful if you know some of the background. It's helpful if you know kind of how the book breaks down. It's helpful if you know the purpose, the date. It's helpful if you know uh, the people in the, each book and sometimes the challenges that you might face when you're reading or studying a book of the Bible. So let me open in prayer and we'll, we'll finish Joshua and begin Judges. Lord, it is with a humble heart, I pray, that we come this morning. We come to open your word. We come to look at what you teach us. We're not the nation Israel, but we can learn a lot from them, Lord. And we are, we are your people, your new covenant people. And so when we look back to see, Lord, what was happening under the old covenant, teach us, teach us to obey your commands. Teach us as new creations in Christ to not fall into idolatry to not fall into sin, to not disobey, but to, to please you, to love you enough that we want to obey. So I pray that we will learn those lessons as we study the book of Judges. In the name of Christ, amen. So what did we learn? Somebody tell me, what did we learn from Joshua last week? What was the main message you got out of it? God, God sent them into the land to give them what he'd promised. Now by the end of the book, did they take all of that? They hadn't done it, had they? Um, we're about to see that that continues. So the, the book centers really around Joshua and what he's doing for the Lord and Israel as they come into the land. And they did not fully take all of the land. So we're looking at um, some interpretive issues at the end of Joshua. We've sort of finished our survey of the book. And you're going you're gonna to have to remind me where we stopped. The lie of Rahab. I thought so. Okay, so number three on selected interpretive issues. These are they're not issues with the Bible. They're issues sometimes with our understanding of a passage or they're issues that have been challenged by maybe more liberal um, Christianity. So what we're looking at is the lie of Rahab. Let's look at that in chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Joshua, we have Rahab lying, clearly. Uh, I kind of previewed that for you last week. Um, these, the men, the spies, come to her house in Jericho. And uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab. So they, they hide with Rahab, and the king sends word to her, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So the king knows what's going on. Everybody knows about Israel. They know about what happened in Egypt. They know what's about to happen to Jericho. The king's not happy that there's already spies in his city. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came to me. She admits that. But I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate of dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof. So the men are on the roof hiding in the stalks of flax which she had laid in order on the roof. So that's kind of their shingles would be just some flax leaves and flax stalks and they could bury down in there and hide out. So she lied. She lied. She said they had left and they didn't leave. So why is that important? Well, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie is one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, even, even a white lie. And even more concerning as Rahab goes on to profess the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel as her God. And if you turn to Hebrews 11, who's listed in this nice role of faith? Rahab. 
And she's in the line of Christ. Not that everybody in the line of Christ was a somehow a perfect, righteous person. But Rahab is called a believer and her faith is, is an example for us in Hebrews 11. So what are we going to do with that? Well, I've already told you. See, I, I already skipped ahead. Look at that. It should be on that slide. All right, here's the possible answers that have been um, suggested by Bible scholars. Her faith was commended, yes, but the lie is never com- condoned or, or commended. Just like the, the midwives in Egypt. Remember the midwives? Oh, Pharaoh, we, we, we're sorry. We can't kill the baby boys because they just come out so fast before we get there, right? That does happen sometimes, but millions of births are happening with the nation of Israel uh, in Egypt. It's not like they were never there when the baby came out. So they lied. Uh, but again, their lie was never commended. Their faith in God, their fear of God over Pharaoh, they feared God more than Pharaoh. That's what's commended. So is that what's going on with Rahab? Um, some would say, well, she did lie, but it was a lesser sin. And the greater sin would be to tell the truth. Then the people would be killed. These are God's spies. These are God's chosen people spying out the land. Another view, and this is kind of popular today, um, deceit's just a part of war. Not much we can do about it. You know, it's, it's okay. In other words, A and B are kind of like God will overlook it. It's not a big deal. Um, Deceit is just a part of war. And I, I don't know if we, we probably should reword. I think, I think you can deceive without lying, but we won't, we won't go into the nuances of that. Uh, let's just say lies are a part of war. That's what some would say. Um, I, the way that you can deceive without lying is just not telling everything you know. That's not lying. If Chris comes up and asks me, you know, what's your passwords for all of your accounts? And I just say, well, you know, I'll give you one. I'll give him one password, but he doesn't know my 99 other passwords. Did I lie? I just didn't give him the whole truth. So there's a kind of deception there. But anyway, uh, D, Rahab's words need not be called a lie. That's kind of the cop-out view, right? Ah, uh, you know, it's not even a lie. But what is a lie? Telling something other than the truth, right? Telling something opposite than the truth. Telling something other than the truth. Um, telling something that doesn't go with reality. And then E, emphasis of the narrative is on Rahab's testimony, not her lie. So E's kind of like A. The difference is A is talking about faith more. So what am I going to go with? I'm going to go with A. Okay, she lied. You know, Abraham lied. And he's a father of the faith. Abraham gave his wife up twice and lied about it. Uh, Jacob lied. People do lie. They sin. That's not really the issue here. The issue was her faith. She you know, she did what she knew to do. She's, she's a Gentile. She just got converted in this incident. She believes in the God of Israel right here in chapter 2. She lied. It's sort of like when we come to faith, we sin right away sometimes. That day, the day you're saved, you still sin. That's not what the emphasis is on. The emphasis is on uh, her faith in Hebrews 11. B and C, I mean, I could, I could kind of lean that way. I just think we ought not to lessen sin to where it's not or lessen a lie so that it's not even a sin. That's the problem. When we start going with B and C, we have to be very careful and say that it's still a sin. Yeah, there is greater sin and lesser sin, but uh, to lie is still a sin. So uh, We won't go into the ethics of war. That's another class. Um, but yeah, I'm going with A on that one. Okay, what about the Canaanite genocide? I'm getting really scholarly on number four with the names, but I explain what they are. In most cases, they kill all the men. In a couple of cases, they kill men, women, children, animals, everything. Everything. So um, what are we going to do with that? Are we as Christians supposed to support that? Are we supposed to emphasize physical violence and fighting like the Crusades? Is that something we should want to do? Should we go into the Muslim world and, and take it for Christianity as the church? How do scholars handle this? Well, the first view is called radical discontinuity. This is essentially heresy. It says that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the New Testament. This is really popular though in, in Christianity today. And it's not, it's not often a heresy like somebody stands up and says, I'm going to tell you a heresy. They just say, you know, God's a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but God's a God of love in the New Testament. And he sent Jesus to show us that love. What's the problem with that view? God doesn't change. Right? 
He has, he, he's unchangeable. We don't want, a, of course, a God that changes. That's scary, right? One day he promises this, and the next day he takes it away. Um, what else? What's, what's our scriptural proof that this is not the, the right answer? That's right. They're both attributes of God. And that's revealed in both New Testament and Old Testament. And also we see God's love in the Old Testament, don't we? I mean, a famous verse that's quoted in the New. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Remember Deuteronomy? We already see the gospel back in Genesis 3. We already see hints of the gospel. We see God saving Abraham, even though Abraham sometimes acts like a scoundrel. And Jacob. And Isaac. And the whole, even Moses. You know, Moses killed the man. He's a murderer. Is that a God of love who would save someone like Moses? What about with Israel all through the Old Testament? Is that not a God of love? Yeah, he punishes, he disciplines, but he also brings them back. Now what's going to happen at the end of time in the New Testament and the book of Revelation? Doesn't it talk about the wrath of the Lamb? Isn't the whole book of Revelation, after chapter 3 anyway, essentially the destruction of the world as God pours out his wrath upon the world? And then the final judgment? So we cannot separate. There's not two gods. And, and this guy, this is from a book. I didn't bring it. There's a book called, um, I think it's just called The Genocide, Holy War, something like that. And it's, it's different views, one of those different views books. And these are the views. Better, I think, is B. Moderate discontinuity. There is a difference in the Old and New Testament, but not a difference in God. So this is more moderate. This is not radical. Radical says God of the Old Testament is different than the New. Moderate says, no, God's commands in the Old Testament are different somewhat than the New. So this view says the commands for holy war were to Old Testament Israel, not for the church. A holy war will be seen at Christ's return, though. Let's not forget that. He's coming back, and he will make a holy war, leading his angels and his people. But uh, it's not for the church. We are not to go and conquer. Of course, the Catholic Church did that in the Middle Ages. That doesn't make it right. But we are nowhere commanded to go and do these things. God specifically commanded Joshua to do these things. Why? Well, there's multiple reasons that are given in the Old Testament. To punish the wickedness of the Canaanites to punish them because they were into child sacrifices. They were burning their babies at the altar. To punish them for their wickedness, for their idolatry. And also uh, because it was God's land that he'd given to Abraham and his descendants, so he wants it cleared out. And so both in punishing and clearing out, he's accomplishing the same task. Uh, C is kind of the spiritual answer. If you, if you don't want to get into the, the details of things, you just kind of spiritualize it. Uh, the church is continuous with Israel. So just as Israel was commanded to fight a holy war physically, we're commanded to fight a holy war spiritually. Now, it kind of sounds good because we are, right? We're put on the armor of God, get out the sword of the Spirit. We are to fight. We are to kill sin. We are to make war with our sin. So it sounds good from that perspective, but the, it's not connected directly to the holy war in the Old Testament. It's not connected directly. So we can't just say, Oh, Joshua was told to go and, and make war with Jericho. We're going to make war with Jericho in our hearts. Does that sound right, Frank? No. Now, is there a principle where God fights against the wickedness of the world in the Old Testament? And God wants us to fight against the wickedness of the world that sometimes is in our flesh? Yeah, there's a connection. But not, not continuity, right? Continuity means it's just a smooth, continuous flow from old to new. So what am I going to pick, Frank? Can you figure that out yet? Yeah, B. I'm picking B on this one. Here, I'll circle it. I recommend you write on your notes and, you know, circle them. And if you want to study up on it and argue with me later, you can. Just don't come back and pick this one. Don't pick A. Okay. Uh, these are some reasons. I, I already talked about some of these. Why did God send them? I just found some reasons from that, that same book I mentioned. Uh, Holy War was a demonstration of God's sovereignty. The pagans said, our God is stronger. So whoever won in battle, that, that was supposed to prove your God was stronger. Pagans said, our God is stronger. The God of Israel showed his sovereignty. And he is actually more powerful than those demons. Uh, Holy War was a demonstration of God's wrath. I don't think these are in your notes. So if you want to write them down, I'll leave them up for a minute. 
Holy War was a demonstration of God's wrath against human sinfulness, particularly a Canaanite culture that had become progressively corrupt over the centuries. Do you remember when, uh, I think it's when Abraham goes down, or is it J- Jacob, and God says, the cup of the wrath against the Amorites is not yet full. Is that Abraham? It's not yet full. The, the Amorites haven't filled up the cup of God's wrath yet. And hundreds of years later, Israel now comes into the land and defeats the Amorites. Number three, holy war enabled the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. So he'd promised Israel the land. He's going to fulfill that. And it's going to protect Israel from following the idols. This is a big problem in Judges. We're going to find out they don't drive out everybody. They get lazy. They stop fighting. And what's going to happen? God told them what would happen. You don't drive them out. They're going to come back in with our idolatry. And you're going to be worshiping their gods before it's all said and done. And also, holy war educated all peoples that Yahweh was a God of both grace and wrath. That wasn't a problem in the ancient world. Everybody knew there was wrath and love and grace in each of their gods that they believed in. Today, people think God's not a God of wrath. There's no, some people think there's no eternal punishment. But this taught everybody, all peoples, their God, Israel's God, is a God of grace because he gave them what he promised. He loves them. And wrath because he punishes, he punishes the wicked. All right, oh, there it is, B. Okay, last one. This is a tough one. I don't know if we can explain it more than what's in Scripture. But let's look at the long day in Joshua. Joshua chapter 10. We've got this long day where Joshua asks God to make the sun stand still. He commands the sun to stand still based on the power of God. Chapter 10, verse 12. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon. O moon, in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? That's just going to be a, a historical book. It's not a biblical book. It's just a book that they had to record things called Jasher. And uh, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. So the sun's out all night, essentially. This is 24 hours. It's sunlight. What happened? And that's an that's interpretive issue because what, you know, what's the problem with that? What's the problem with that, Chris? Sun stays out 24 hours, full day. What's, what, is, what does that mean in the cosmic sense of things? The earth stops rotating. Then what's going to happen? All, all kinds of chaos, right? All kinds of chaos. So, you know, to, to deal with that, a lot of people say, well, it's just figurative. It's just figurative. One of the commentaries I, I really like for Joshua, I think it's uh, Howard, Dr. Howard. I recommended it to you last week. Uh, unfortunately, on this, he goes with, a, I think, a more liberal view, and he just says that's figurative. It didn't really happen. The problem is, the Bible says it happened, and it's recorded in other books that it happened. So what happened? Well, if you take it literal, we have multiple choices. The earth stopped rotating. That would do it. The sun's light lingered. Maybe kind of like, uh, is, it, is it in the wintertime? In the Arctic Circle where it never gets dark? Is that in the winter? So, you know, it, it kind of, uh, there's a little bit of light left at night they can still see by. Uh, the sun's light was blocked. That was, that's an option. I'm not sure. Why that would help? Because the sun is supposed to be out longer, but maybe this is sort of like a solar eclipse um, or lunar eclipse. I don't know. And then four, a special sign was involved. It's just miraculous. We can't really say much more than it's a special sign. Now, I like the fact, yeah, it's a special sign. It's miraculous. That's not a bad answer. But it literally says that the sun stopped. So for the sun to stop, we know the earth had to stop for the sun to stop. So I'm going with the most literal here. Not that I can explain what happened, but if God can create the world, he can fix it so that the world stops. It's not going to fall apart. We're not going to fly off the planet 
and things are going to go chaotic. Uh, There's much greater miracles than this for God to, to stop the earth from, you know, going into chaos and the universe from going into chaos. That's not a big leap in my mind when he created it all and he does many other miracles uh, throughout Scripture. Any questions on those? So do we end Joshua on a good note or a bad note? Just kind of okay, right? It's kind of okay. I mean, they don't finish, but Joshua dies. He, he's an old guy at this point, really old. And he expects that they will go on and do what he's been telling them to do. In fact, before he dies, he said, uh, you know, determine this day whom you will serve. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You guys, all the other family heads, y'all need to decide if you're going to serve God, then do what he says. Finish the task. Settle the land. Don't worship idols. Okay, Judges. Why is it called Judges? Because all the rulers in this book are called Judges. That's not a judge so much like we think today. Uh, a judge is not, in ancient Israel, someone who sets and rules over court cases. They might, so we use that word in English, it's the best translation. But a judge is just a leader of a certain area. So as a leader of an area, a tribe, a clan, a tribe of Israel, you would be called a judge. If you are appointed by God, and he showed success to prove that you are appointed by God, then you are a judge. That's all that it means. Of course, they would hear cases, maybe as a ruler, but that's not really emphasized except for maybe uh, Deborah. All right. The title, simply judges, whether you're looking at the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint Greek Bible, and even in English. You remember before this, we've had different names. Hebrews would call it one thing. And then the Greeks and and English speakers would call it another thing. Here they're both judges. Who wrote it? Big question mark. Doesn't say. We don't know. The Jews think that it's Samuel who wrote it. Samuel's going to be the last judge. And he's called a judge in 1 Samuel. Uh, It's thought that Samuel wrote it basically because he's the best candidate for the time period that it would have been written in. So they take place, the writer is writing this, after the events take place. And you see that multiple times throughout the book. One, two, three, four times. It says, to this day. Certain things happen, and it's that way, and to this day. It's continuing to this day. So this is after the book of Joshua and Judges, of course. And it's before David's capture of Jerusalem and a thousand 4 BC, because the Jebusites, in chapter 1, verse 21, the Jebusites still rule over Jerusalem. But the sons of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the sons of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So whenever the writer writes, he's writing before David. So who comes after the book of Judges time frame and before David? Samuel's your best candidate. No one else is mentioned. So I'm I'm fine with Samuel. It's not going to be uh, uh, I'm not going to be legalistic about it. Maybe Frank will since he's our seminarian here. But uh, just calm down, Frank. Who do you think wrote it, Frank? You go with Samuel. Okay, we got agreement here from a master's seminary guy. What's a shortened uh, theme here? Disobedience and defeat. But we have to put this element of the king in there because it's mentioned so much. Disobedience and defeat without a king. And if we were to expand that into why is it here, what's the purpose? The purpose of the book is to teach us the failure of Israel during the period of the judges demonstrated Israel's need for a righteous human king. This is kind of a debate on what the book is there for. Uh, Some would focus more, we'll, we'll come to this in an interpretive issue. Some would focus more on the disobedience and defeat. Others focus more on a king. Because we see this over and over. There was no king in those days in Israel. And there's no king. And there's no king. And you get to 1 Samuel and now the people start asking for a king. So let's outline it a bit. We'll go through some of these sections. An outline's helpful. Uh, my, my professor in seminary said about the book of Judges, he said it's interesting 
that when Israel is the most disorganized in all of their history, that we have a very organized outline for this book. There's very little debate about how it breaks down. The first three chapters jump right into the disobedience. As soon as Joshua dies, and then the elders who ruled with Joshua die, they go into disobedience. So look at chapter 1, verse 1. That came about after the death of Joshua. So that's the key. They have no leader now. Joshua's dead. Moses died. Then Joshua died. Who's going to lead? The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? So who's going to go fight first? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I in turn will go with you into the territory allotted you. So Simeon went with him. Judah went up. The Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands. They defeated 10,000. They found Adonai, Bezek, and Bezek, and fought against him. But he fled in verse 6. And then in verse 7, uh, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to gather up scraps under my table as I've done, so God has repaid me. So he just admits his defeat, this Canaanite king does. So they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Then the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So they captured Jerusalem, but then they didn't occupy it. So the Jebusites are going to stay there and, and regroup. Afterward, the sons of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites living in the hill country and in the Negev and the lowland. So Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. So what's the point here? This first section is all about the tribe of Judah doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're fighting. They're taking the territory that God has allotted them. They're helping out uh, fellow tribes. And then they capture other cities there in verse 11 and onward. Um, let's skip down now to verse 27. But Manasseh did not take possession of Beth Shean and its villages. And all these other cities they were supposed to. And then continuing on down, so the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. That's at the end of verse 27. That's our first clue in Judges. Things are not going right. They didn't push him out. Now they're still living there. Verse 28, it came about uh, when Israel became strong that they put the Canaanites to forced labor. So let's just make them slaves. You know, why kill them? Like God said, let's just make them slaves. We're not going to fight against them. They're already kind of submissive. Maybe we could strike a deal. They'll just live in their cities. And when we need them to do work, they can work for us. But they did not drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the Canaanites too. And Nephtali, verse 33, they didn't do it. They made them forced labor. The Amorites, in verse 34, forced the sons of Dan into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. So the, the Danites, the tribe of Dan, was supposed to go north. And take the land that God had allotted them. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get enough army to fight the Amorites. They could not conquer them. So the Amorites persisted in living in Mount Harris, in Ajilon, and in Shalbim. But when the power of the house of Joseph grew strong, they became forced labor. So even when the power of Joseph's descendants came strong enough to take the Amorites, they still sort of wimped out and just made them forced labor. The border of the Amorites ran from the ascent. And he goes on to talk about uh, how much land the Amorites had. Chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim. Who's the angel of the Lord? Well, at the least, it's an angel. But I've made the case in this class before when we were doing systematic theology that the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is the pre-incarnate Christ. The angel of the Lord as the pre-incarnate Christ. And he says, I brought you. So he's saying, I. He's, the angel's saying this, but God's the one who brought them. So what's the point here? The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, the Son of God. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. 
And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. That's what they were doing. They were making an agreement. You can live here as long as you work when we tell you to work. You go chop the wood for us in the wintertime. You come build our houses for us. You pull in the crops for us. We'll let you keep your towns and villages. God says, don't do that. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. Can't very well do that if you let them continue living there because they're just going to keep building altars to their gods. But you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. They disobeyed God. And you know what God did? He didn't wipe them off the face of the earth, but he said, now you're going to have struggle. Now you're going to have problems. Now you're going to have issues with these people and they're going to be a snare to you and their gods will be a snare to you. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochim and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Then it goes back, talks about Joshua dying. 2.11 And the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Who are the Baals? The gods of the Canaanites. The gods of the Canaanites believed in a deity called Baal. He was worshipped in different places. Also the, the female version is the Ashtoreth. So sometimes called the queen of heaven. So you had the king of heaven and Baal and Ashtoreth is the queen of heaven. And they worship these gods. And now God's own people are worshiping these false gods. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the anger of the Lord. So they forsook the Lord, served Baal and Ashtoreth. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Is God going to keep his word? He's going to keep his word. Even with his covenant people, he is going to punish them. He is going to discipline them. If he's going to do that with his people, what's he going to do with unbelievers? This is a, there's a lesson here just in the, the holiness of God, the wrath of God. What is he going to do if he does this to his own people, which is right for him to do because he's righteous and he told them ahead of time. What's he going to do to those people who don't even follow him? It's going to be much worse. That's why how many nations do we see here in Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges that are still around today? Seen any Amorites around, Carl? You seen any Ammonites? No. Jebusites? No. How about Canaanites? <laughs> Sometimes we act like Canaanites. Huh? Is that what you're saying? The world acts like Canaanites. Um, God has promised to preserve Israel. It doesn't mean every person in Israel had a changed heart. It doesn't mean every person in Israel was serving a loving God. But he makes some covenant promises to them that we should be thankful for because they carry over into the New Testament for Gentiles as well. But um, Joshua's dead. The next generation is already worshiping the balls before really the next generation is even born. The people who were alive when Joshua was alive are already worshiping false gods. How long does it take a nation to turn? Pretty quick. Pretty quick. So chapter 3 God does what he says. He turns them over to these people. It's not like God shows up, you know, in the flesh and he wraps them up in chains and dumps them on the Canaanites' border, right? That's not how God does things. He does it through means. He does it through sinful, evil people. Not that God is sinful, but they already desire to come and attack Israel. And so God permits that. God allows that. And God's foreordained plan, it happens just exactly as he said. They come, they take Israel, they begin to make them slaves. So the whole thing's reversed. Israel thought, we'll leave them here, we'll let them live, we will make them our slaves. Now what's happened? The whole thing's been flipped, exactly like God said. You leave them in the land, you'll worship their gods, you'll become their slaves. 
And that's what's happened. So from here on out in Judges, it's back and forth. Israel gets pushed back. They get plundered. They get captured as slaves. They call out to God in repentance. God sends a leader. He raises up a leader. It's not like he sends them directly from heaven, right? The the person's already living in Israel, but he raises them up. He gives them special abilities and occasionally even does miracles to prove that they're his leaders. And they will... They will conquer. They will win battles against these Canaanites and there will be peace in the land for a generation. Sometimes a generation, sometimes shorter. Then what happens? When you have peace, what do you do? When everything's nice and cozy, stumble back into sin. So we see this cycle repeat seven times in the history of Judges. Chapters 3 through 16. The first oppression, chapter 3, the beginning, then God raised up Othniel, Othniel. And then second oppression happens for a period of time. They cry out, they repent. God raises up Ehud. But after every one of these judges, they go right back into their sin. They go right back. This is the kind of book that needs to be preached more in churches, but everybody would want to leave the church because it's so depressing. (laughs) One after the other. It's just they get rescued, they go back into their sin. They get rescued. They go back into their sin. So this happens seven times. Uh, There's more than seven judges, but uh, this happens in seven cycles. And then at the very end, the whole thing just falls apart. It's back and forth, back and forth. By the time you get to the end, though, we've got full-on idolatry throughout the land. We've got immorality happening. Um... This concubine with, you know, the Levite concubine story. You should read that if you haven't read it before. What's it there for? To show you how wicked God's people had gotten. How wicked. First of all, why does this Levite even have a concubine? What's he doing traveling around anyway? Then the men of the city want to come out and have sexual relations with her. The guy gives her up. And then essentially she dies. Because of that abuse, what does he do? Cuts her up into pieces and mails it out to all the tribes of Israel. Look what happened in Benjamin. Look what Benjaminites did to my concubine. And the whole thing just spiraled. It it points back to Sodom and Gomorrah. These, These men of the city knocking on the door, banging on the door to get in. You know, give me, give me this person who came into town. And so the whole thing falls apart. And it's anarchy by the last two chapters because now there's a civil war. Everybody wants to wipe out Benjamin for this wickedness because the body parts getting mailed to you kind of wakes you up, gets you very angry. (laughs) We've never seen anything like this, they said. We've never seen anything like this ever in the nation of Israel since we came out of Egypt. Let's go and make them pay for it because they weren't repentant. Benjamin said, hey, I'm sticking with my buddies. We're one tribe. All the other 11 tribes attack them. There's hardly anybody left no men anyway, in Benjamin. They have to find wives from the other tribes to marry the few men that are left so they can have children and repopulate that tribe. It's anarchy by the end of the book. So you go from going into the land and celebrating to completely everything's falling apart by the end of Judges. What are the dates for this book? Well, the death of Joshua is the date we don't know. So, the death of Joshua, probably 1375 to 1390. And then to the death of Samson, who's the last judge mentioned in the book of Judges. And he dies a few years before Saul starts his reign. So if Saul starts his reign in 1050, we're pretty sure on that. Samson's probably 1055 BC. So about five years before Saul. It's a long period. What is that? 300 and 40, 350, depending on how you change that first number. So we have 350 years. They didn't learn their lesson from the book of Numbers. They didn't learn their lesson from Moses and Joshua. Now they're going to continue in this pattern and make it even worse. Some key chapters. Chapter 5, you have the Song of Deborah. The Song of Deborah. Uh, Deborah has a great victory. We probably should talk about Deborah. I don't know if 
Yeah, I probably won't get to the interpretive issues, but let's just talk about Deborah for a minute. Many many look to Deborah as sort of an example of uh, female pastors in the church today. Was she a pastor? She was a judge. We have female judges in America. Yeah, it's not quite the same thing, but let's put the right context around it. Deborah's a judge. She's a leader. Does Deborah even want to go out and lead the troops? She doesn't want to. God raises her up. Why? Because Barak is a wimp. Barak is a wimp. He won't go. So she takes him out. And then she has this great victory. And I think it's, it's really one way is saying, look, you men are so weak and so wimpy. Look at this woman who's the leader of Israel, or at least that tribe, not the whole country. But she's not a pastor. She's not preaching. The church doesn't even exist yet. So let's not jump to those connections. Can God use women to do great things? Yes. We see that all throughout Scripture. Though that does show us that, of course. But it doesn't negate commands in the New Testament that Paul gives to the church in 1 Timothy. Uh, So we have her song there in uh, Judges 5. I don't think I'm going to touch too much on that for time's sake. Um, So Deborah and Barak both get the credit, even though Deborah is the stronger one there. And as far as spiritually speaking. And then it's not very long. Chapter 6. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's the cycle happening. The Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. So, I mean, it's so bad that Israel's hiding out in caves. They've been given this land. They've been given these cities. The cities are built already for them when they come in. They come in. They make war against the people. People are killed. They've got the cities. Now they're living in holes in the ground. That's how bad it's gotten. And God raises up Gideon. We have Gideon with the sign of the fleece. Why does Gideon get the sign of the fleece? Because he's doubtful that he could be the leader for God. He could be a judge. So God gives him this this miraculous sign. Shall we expect fleeces in our yard in the morning to give us a sign? What do you think, Chris? You got fleeces in your yard this morning? You don't even have sheep, so you're in trouble. What is this? It's a miraculous sign. Miraculous sign that confirms this is God's leader for that time. Uh, I like Kevin DeYoung's book. I think we have it in the bookstore. I don't know the title, but uh, what's the shortened title of it? Just do something. And then the subtitle is like, How to Make Decisions Biblically Without blank, 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 putting out fleeces to see if they, you know, get the, um, the dew on it and all these things that happen in the Bible. We don't, we don't need those because we have all the scripture. What we need is to know God's word so we can make the best decisions. So check out Just Do Something. I recommend it for every teenager and young person especially. Then we've got Samson in 13 through 16. Samson's a famous guy. Kind of a scoundrel though, isn't he? Samson. He goes and marries a prostitute. or I don't even think he marries her, does he? He just hangs out with her in an ungodly way. And uh, you know he, he does great things for God and then he falls back into sin. Kind of a picture of Israel. And in the end... Uh, he gets sort of retribution on his Canaanite capturers by pulling the temple down upon them. And that ends the last judgeship in Judges. So Samson's a great story. What do we know about Samson? He's also in that line of faith in Hebrews 11. That scoundrel Samson can be saved? Yeah. Key passages. We're going to come back to Jephthah's vow. This is a big issue with how we interpret it. But Jephthah was one of the judges. He makes a very stupid vow. His daughter uh, ends up suffering because of it. We'll come back and read the whole passage. 17.6. This is a repetitive phrase we see. Let's go to it in 17.6. I think it's mentioned four times, and here's two of them that are matching here. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the interpretive verse for the whole book. 
That's where we get the theme from. People did whatever they wanted. And what one of the reasons is there's no king. Which is kind of tricky for us. If you, have, if you know much about the Old Testament, what's tricky about that? God said, I will be your king. You don't need a king. That's for the other nations. But then Moses says, someday God's going to give you a king. So what is it? Well, God knows they're going to sin. God knows they're going to stray. God knows they're going to fragment and be chaotic. And so he's going to send them his king. Now you get to 1 Samuel, they pick the wrong guy themselves. They don't pick God's man. They pick their man. And then God makes him king. But it's, it's sort of a, a problematic issue with King Saul. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There's nobody to unite all the tribes. They're doing whatever they want. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. We see that repeated again near the end of the book in 21-25. You can just do whatever you want. There's no one to punish you. You can worship whatever gods you want in Israel. You can go murder people. You can chop, chop, chop up concubines. You can let false worship occur. No one's there to stop it. Key people. Barak, remember he's with Deborah. Deborah's the fourth judge of Israel. She's also a prophetess. So is she proclaiming God's word? Yeah, there are prophetesses in the Bible. There's not, prophetess is not a pastor. It's actually two different gifts even in the New Testament. Uh, she's an administrator of justice. So there is a sense where she's judging court cases. And she's called a mother in Israel. Uh, Gideon has a unique victory over the Midianites after he does step up and lead. Jephthah, he's the eighth judge of Israel. He's of illegitimate birth. So he's the son of an affair, basically. He's appointed leader over Gilead. He defeated the Ammonites decisively as well as the Ephraimites. His vow caused him to sacrifice his daughter. If you've never read Judges, you need to read Judges. Samson's the 12th judge, the last one in the mention in the book. He fought the Philistines. He was very strong. He's the guy with the long hair. What happens if you cut his hair? He gets weak. Does that mean we should all grow hair long? We're in trouble, Carl. We don't have much hair to grow, but <laughs> should we grow hair long so we'll be strong guys? Right? Is that No. Miraculous thing. Miraculous thing. As long as he follows what God has told him to do, that he's trusting in God, God will bless him. If he allows that to be cut or cuts it himself, then he's disobeying and God will take that from him. Well, it wasn't his fault he didn't cut it. It was his fault that he was with that woman, wasn't it? That he wasn't supposed to be with because she's not of the nation Israel. She's a Philistine. What's he doing going to her place, marrying her eventually? What's going on there? He's saying, I don't care right now about God. I'm going to do my own thing. And then she tricks him, cuts his hair. And he gets captured. Okay, books of the Bible, helpful resources um, for Joshua. I'm sorry, Judges and Ruth, commentary books. Daniel Block is a great Old Testament scholar. I recommend him highly. Again, New American Commentary series. Somebody asked me the other day, do I recommend a whole series? And I don't usually recommend a whole series, but for the Old Testament, I really like the New American Commentary set. It's just got a good even number of um, commentaries. So if you're going to study in depth, Dr. Block is your man. This is not Dr. Vlock with a V, at Master Seminary. This is Dr. Block, who I think is still at Wheaton College. Uh, he came to Kerrville Bible Church when we were there many years ago, and he did a whole weekend conference on the Gospel in Deuteronomy, the Gospel of Moses in Deuteronomy. And he pointed out all these verses of Deuteronomy that point to Christ and point to the New Covenant and talk about God's grace. And then, of course, Dale Ralph Davis. He's always good. He has a, a sermons combined into a commentary. It's really not a commentary. It's just a sermons put right there. He's a funny guy. Better yet, if you pull up one of his sermons online and listen to it. Uh, he is a character. He does tell some stories, but they're usually connected to the point of the passage. So he's a Tennessee mountain man there. Okay, interpretive problems in Judges. What is the purpose of Judges? We've already looked at this. Is it to show that there's a need for a king in Israel? Or is it more of a focus on how good and gracious God is with the nation, even though they let the Canaanites continue to live there after the conquest and settlement of the land? So what's not, not 
which one is true. Both of these are true, but what's the reason the book is even in our Bibles? Well, one of the clues is the book that comes after this. What's the book that comes after this? First Samuel. Now, in our Bibles, it's Ruth, but in the Hebrew Bible, it wasn't. It was First Samuel, or just Samuel. They, remember, it's just the book of Samuel. It's divided up into two, probably because the amount of stuff you could fit on a scroll. But what happens in First Samuel? They get their first king. He's a scoundrel too, so then they have to get, uh, God raises up David, who is a, the king of God's choice. So, I'm going to go with A for two reasons. One is the following books, but even better, four times it said there was no king in Israel. In those days, every man did what was right in his own eyes. There was no leader. Four times. We looked at that verse, 17.6. It's mentioned increasingly near the end of the book. That's kind of the lesson. Look how bad it is. God gives them somebody in this little area over here. They go and win a battle. Then they go right back into their sin. Israel needs a king. Israel needs a king. And Moses had already mentioned that in his sermons in Deuteronomy. So I'm going with A. I think it's more explicit. This is an interesting one here. If you take all the judges and the years that are given in the book and you add them up, you're going to come to about 480 years. Let's do that. We'll do a little math here. I got some math majors in the room. That'll help us out here. But the chart pretty much tells us. So what this column here, years of oppression, that's, this is how many years that people suffered before God raised up a ruler. So before Othniel came, there was eight years of oppression by the Canaanites. Before Ehud, there was 18. We don't know about Shamgar. By the way, it's never said where Shamgar comes from. He doesn't have a tribe mentioned. He only gets one little verse. God raised up Shamgar, essentially. That's all it says. And he defeated the Philistines. It's thought maybe he doesn't have a tribe because he's not an Israelite. Maybe God raised up a Gentile who was living with Israel and who was following God. That's possible. It makes you wonder why everybody else has a, has a um, tribe mentioned. Abimelech's not a judge, but it's during the time of Abimelech uh, that these other two are raised up. So this column that I've circled, that's how many years they're oppressed. Okay? Then the judge is raised up by God. He goes out. He conquers their enemies. Their enemies are mentioned in this column here. So these are the enemies that are fought against. And then you have peace. So we'll make peace a green, green peace there. Okay. 40 years of rest. That's a long time. That's a generation or more. 80 years with Ehud when he sticks that dagger in that guy's fat belly. Remember that story? Ehud? He's kind of a sneaky guy, isn't he? He slips in. He lies. He sticks a dagger all the way in to the hilt and sneaks out and runs off. 80 years. They have peace. 40, 40, 23, 22, 6, 7, 10. Okay, there's all the years of peace. You add everything up, you're going to get 410. You got two more judges, though. They're not mentioned in the book. They're mentioned in the next book, but they're called judges. Who are they? Eli and Samuel. Eli and Samuel. We don't know how long Samuel lived as a judge or ruled as a judge, but Eli was 40 years. He's a high priest and a judge. Samuel's kind of like a high priest, and he's also a judge. So let's just say 60. 410 plus 60. We need a math major for that. Caleb, where are you? You slipped out, huh? 470, right? Okay, let's turn over to 1 Kings chapter 6. This is one of those word problems that my kids don't like in math. You got you to put it all together and see if it works out. So we have right here, we have 400 and 70 plus years with all these judges. The 12 mentioned in Judges, and there's two more in 1 Samuel. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about in the 480th year. So we have a number there, don't we? 480. Came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. He builds the temple. He starts to build the temple. So we have a time reference here. This is how we know when the Exodus occurred, by the way. 
We have a time reference. We know when Solomon started to build the temple. Anybody know that date? Let's draw a timeline. My blue line's a timeline here. Solomon builds the temple. 966 B.C. So, add 480 to 966. What do we got? 1446. That's when they left Egypt. Are you seeing the problem yet? This is fun. This is math from the Bible. Who would have thought, right? 1446. So we got 480 years. How many years for all the judges? 470? That's going to take up most of that 480, isn't it? We only got 10 years left over. That's going to be a problem. Why? Well, how long did David rule? So this is Solomon in his fourth year. Then we've got David here. How long did David rule? Forty years. How long did how long did Saul rule as king? Forty years. How long were they in the wilderness before they came into the promised land? Forty years. So we had 480 to work with. Now what do we got? 480 minus 40 minus 40 minus 40. What's that? 360? We only have 360 years left, and we haven't even figured out Joshua yet. Because Joshua's going to be right around here, and he's going to, maybe from the time they come into the land in 1406, uh, before Joshua dies, you might have 40 years. 40 to 50 years. So we're out of time. The judges don't add up. Is the Bible not true? All these numbers don't work? They don't work out. Just basic math. You can't, can't fool, you can't fool the calculator. Is the Bible not true? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to use our thinking cap, like scholars have done, and start looking at this chart and saying, what tribes are they judges over? Othniel ruled over Judah. Ehud was over Benjamin. Deborah was over Ephraim and Naphtali with Barak. Gideon was over Manasseh. Who's to say these are consecutive one right after the other? It's not like one judge ruled the whole country. The judges up here, judges over here, judges down here, judges down here. They have overlapping time periods. So that's an easy, I think, problem once we start to look at some of the verses. Uh, 3.26 and Judges 3.26. This is where we'll stop today. We're not going to get to Jephthah's vow. We'll have to start in the next class on that one. That's a big one. Did Jephthah actually sacrifice his daughter unto death? Or was it something else? little teaser to bring you back next week. It's not a very funny story, but it it's, uh, helps us exercise our interpretive issues. 3.26, Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country. So all the people come out. They fight after he sticks his dagger in there. Um, Verse 29, They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men. No one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The land was undisturbed for eight years. So we got an eight-year period of peace. After him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. So after Ehud, but it doesn't say after the time of peace, right? So you have Ehud raised up. He does his little assassin mission. But then Shamgar comes after Ehud. It doesn't say how long, though. So there's some overlapping in that eight years of peace. That's all we hear about Shamgar. He gets one verse, and he's attacking somebody else. Ehud was on the Moabites. And then Shamgar is attacking the Philistines, two different groups. Chapter 4, Then the sons of Israel again did evil on the side of the Lord after Ehud died. It's not after Shamgar died, but after Ehud died in chapter 4. So Shamgar's kind of skipped over. He takes place in that time span that Ehud's peace was occurring. So we just get an example of overlapping. There's a similar one here, a chapter 10 and 13. You have two judges fighting the same people. You have Samson in 13 fighting the Philistines. And I can't remember who it was in 10. Is it Jephthah? 
chapter 10. Let me look real quick. Um, no, we have these, these two here, Tola and Jer. Tola and Jer, but they're both fighting the Philistines around the same time period. So they're probably overlapping, but in different parts of the country. One's more north and the other one's more south. So that solves the problem. Next week, come back. We'll start the class with Jephthah's vow. We'll be done with Joshua. I mean, Judges, sorry. We'll be done with Judges, and we'll move on to Ruth. So we're taking our English order of the Bible, not the Hebrew order. We'll do Ruth next week, Lord willing. But we've got to talk about Jephthah's vow. Lord, I do pray that we might have learned something this morning. At the least, Lord, that we've learned not to disobey you. That we have a healthy fear, a reverence for your holiness, for your righteousness. We know just like those Israelites that we stumble, that we want to run sometimes back into sin, that we want to worship our money and our business and our possessions. Help us not to do that. Help us not to worship the world as an idol, but to seek you, to seek your will. Let us learn the lessons that Israel did not learn in that time. Paul says the Old Testament's there to be a lesson to us. So I pray that we would learn it, take it to heart, and live out a holy life. In Christ's name, amen.